my beloved son. Tomorrow, the Olympics end, and there have been some exciting moments. You've caught the highlights. Uh, people like Sean White, who just kills it, um, Lindsey Vaughn. Um, and it makes me think about Olympians. It's, uh, what makes someone get there? I, I think it's because when they were younger, they watched a previous Olympics, and they saw this stage and the medal ceremony, and they said, I want to be there. Even though it's going to take suffering and difficulty and patience and failures and injuries, even, even someone like the, uh, the women's hockey team, right? They won gold. Um, they haven't been able to beat the Canadians for like 20 years, you know? Like, but, and so the people who won the gold this year, like they've never seen the hockey team like beat the Canadians. They've never seen it. All they've known is difficulty and failure. But they knew it was possible. And they kept that before them. And that, that hope is what helped them to persevere through all the difficulty. They were tested. And they were proven worthy of gold. Today we hear of Abraham and Isaac. Abraham is the figure of faith in Scripture. And we hear about his famous test. We all kind of know this story, right? Of God calling Abraham to take his son Isaac and to offer him as a holocaust. But we look, it's crazy because a few chapters earlier in Genesis 15, God says to Abraham, even though I know you're like 90 years old already, like, I'm going to make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky. We've heard that, right? So God tells him this promise. He doesn't even have a son at that point. Now, it's a few chapters later, he has his son, Isaac, and God's like, oh, you remember that promise? Okay, so now I want you to take that one son through whom all your descendants will come, and I want you to go up and offer him as a holocaust. I want you to kill him. And Abraham listens to God's voice. And, he's com and, and the book of Hebrews 11.19 says that Abraham reasoned, okay, God made this promise, and now he's telling me to kill the person through whom this promise is going to be brought about. Okay. And so therefore, in 11.19 it says, Abraham reasoned that God was able to raise even from the dead. That God's promise is more powerful than death. That if God made this promise, and even if my son were to die, that somehow God must be able to bring him back to life so that he could still fulfill his promise. Because God cannot deny himself. God is all-powerful, all-knowing. And if he says something, and he's going to do something, he has to do it. Does that make sense? So, so we see Abraham as an example of faith that like, like he got the resurrection even before it happened. That God must have the power to bring life from death because he's asking me to do this. Psalm 116 says today, I believed even, and even when I said I am greatly afflicted. That just because it was difficult 
that that's his, his faith was proven through it. And then, so at the end of our first reading, God re-echoes his promise. I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that because you acted as you did, and not withholding from me, your beloved son, I will bless you abundantly and make your descendants as countless as the stars of the sky and the sands of the seashore. All this because you obeyed my command. That I, I'm going to up the ante, that I'm going to bless you no matter what. And where God spares the life of Isaac, Abraham's beloved son, God does not withhold his beloved son. Romans speaks it so clearly today. He who did not spare his own son, but handed him over for us all, how will he not also give us everything along with him? God doesn't have Abraham follow through and offer his son. But God shows his greater love by being willing to offer his beloved son. And if God has given us his beloved son, how will he not give us everything? Which, which I hear, when I read this, I hear Luke 15, when the prodigal son, when he comes back and the father says to him and his older brother, everything I have is yours. I'm holding nothing back. I am giving you everything good. But that seems really confusing because why this test with Abraham and Isaac? Why does it have to be that way? Why did Jesus have to suffer? If you're holding nothing back, if you're giving him everything that's good, this suffering sure does not feel good. But what he shows us in his son is that where, where Abraham and Isaac suffered, Jesus went further that where they felt suffering and difficulty and distress and feeling disconnected from God Jesus went there and went further that you and I in our sufferings no matter how bad it seems no matter how far we feel from God Jesus Christ has come to be with us in our suffering and he has gone further. That you and I haven't died. But Jesus has entered into the depth of human suffering and gone further. To show us that he is never, that God never asks us to do something that he himself is not willing to do. That he himself has not done first. So precisely in that place where I feel disconnected from God, when I feel like nothing good can come from this, when I see death, when I, I've been reading a, uh, a light morning read of children, of divorced children, speak, of parents speak, uh, it's just light morning reading. Um, <laughs> like even in the death of my own family, mom and dad separated. Feels like hell. That God says, I have a plan to bring a greater good from that. That's what he says. Even the worst place that I've been, God's like, I go there and I go further. Why? 
I'm going further than I'm asking you to go so that I can then take you with me where I go. That by our sharing in the suffering of Christ, it invites us into participation in his life so that we can then go and share in his glory. That's what we hear. That's why this gospel is given to us in the middle of Lent, in the middle of carrying our cross, in the middle of people preparing to receive baptism. That we're given this glimpse of Jesus in glory, that the disciples, they go up on the mountain, right? They're, they're taken up, and they see Jesus in his glory. And they're like, this is unbelievable. Like, this is, we don't want to be anywhere else. We want to stay here. We want to worship you. That's what the tents are for. And, and Jesus is saying, yes, but it's not time yet. And the Father speaks the identity of his Son, that this is my beloved Son. And you and I, who are baptized into Christ, you and I, who are incorporated into his mystical body through baptism, when the Father looks at you and I, when he looks at me, he sees his beloved son. When the father looks at each one of us here, he sees his beloved son, whom he has destined to share in his glory. And so the disciples are given this image because Jesus is about to go to Calvary and suffer and die. And so the disciples are, are given this image of the glory to come if they, will, if they can just stay close to Jesus through the suffering and death. And it's through Jesus' suffering and death, through his acceptance of the Father's will, that leads to his glory. The fact that Jesus does it means really that there's no other way. In fact, it's the way. That the way to glory is through suffering. That the way to heaven is through the cross. <clears throat> That's a picker-upper, you know, like, but, but, Jesus, but Jesus says that, like, he goes there first. So that as you and I go through our suffering, as we carry our cross, that we do not do it alone. That's, hell is carrying my cross alone. Where Jesus is, where God is, is heaven. So as I invite Jesus to be with me in my hell, it suddenly is transformed to maybe it's not quite so bad, it's not quite so alone that Jesus is with me, that I can actually experience peace in heaven right here and where I felt I was in hell. Does that make sense? That's, that's how we persevere. We don't persevere just fighting on by ourselves. We, we, we invite the Lord to be with us. And he's like, let me do it. Let me carry it for you. So Jesus goes further than we will ever have to go so that he can take us further than we ever could go. That Jesus chooses the perfect will of the Father, trusting in the Father's goodness, trusting in the Father's promises to him and to all of us by our baptism. And that's what allows him to share in his glory. In 1928, a man named Walter entered seminary. The following year, he volunteered to be a missionary in Russia. And so what they did was they sent him to Rome, where he 
was formed and where he also learned Russian and all that kind of stuff. And after being ordained in 1940, he snuck into the Soviet Union. Why did he want to go there? Because uh, the people in Russia, they were suffering religious persecution and that the people were going without the sacraments. They were going without Jesus with them. He was there for one year when he was arrested. They found him out. And he spent five years in prison in Moscow. And uh, at that point, they were uh, torturing him. And under severe torture, he signed a confession. They're like, just, just confess that you did this, and it'll be fine. And so under severe torture, he signed his confession. And they're like, okay, now that you've confessed, we are going to send you to the Gulag work camp for an untold number of years. And so in, he went there. For, he was in the Gulag work camp. Uh, where people died all the time on severe conditions uh, for 15 years. And it was in the midst of that darkness and that ongoing torture, in the midst of that suffering, that he encountered God with him in a way that would never leave him the rest of his life. He recognized that just like Jesus on the cross, Acknowledging that this is God's will, that somehow, that if this dark hellishness that I'm experiencing, that if this is God's will, that there's nowhere else I'd rather be. Because it's precisely through this will of God that I will arrive at heaven. That through this suffering, that's how I will share in his glory. And so I want to I read you just a, a paragraph from his um, autobiography, He Leadeth Me, um, that I think, is, I think is powerful for being able to say yes to God's will of being exactly where I am. He says this, Across that threshold, I had been afraid to cross. Things suddenly seemed so very simple. There was but a single vision, God, who was all in all. There was but one will that directed all things, God's will. I had only to see it, to discern it in every circumstance in which I found myself, and let myself be ruled by it, God's will. God is in all things, sustains all things, directs all things. To discern this in every situation and circumstance, to see his will in all things, was to accept each circumstance and situation and let oneself be born along in perfect confidence and trust. Nothing could separate me from him because he was in all things. No danger could threaten me. No fear could shake me except the fear of losing sight of him. The future, hidden as it was, was hidden in his will, and therefore acceptable to me, no matter what it might bring. The past, with all its failures, was not forgotten. It remained to remind me of the weakness of human nature and the folly of putting any faith in self. But it no longer depressed me. I looked no longer to self to guide me, relied on it no longer in any way, so it could not again fail me. By renouncing finally and completely 
all control of my life and future destiny, I was relieved as a consequence of all responsibility. I was freed thereby from anxiety and worry, from every tension, and could float serenely upon the tide of God's sustaining providence in perfect peace of soul. Knowing that God is leading me to perfect happiness and peace, I can accept whatever comes my way. Because like Abraham and Isaac, like Jesus on the cross, somehow, even the worst difficulty I could ever face is somehow simply just a part of his will leading me to glory, becoming the path of my transfiguration. That because God, who is for us, in his perfect power and knowledge and goodness and patience and love, that I can rest completely in my Father because I am his beloved Son.